Well, this is a special privilege to be here. This is my first opportunity ever to come to Church of the Cross. I will tell you this, you have a reputation and it's a good one. And so I bring you greetings from many, many other churches in the Anglican Mission in the Americas. It's a large family and it's a wonderful family. And many people know of the work here and you're holding forth the gospel and living for Christ in this community. You're reaching out to people who may not know who God is and living around people in such a way that the gospel is presented by the very life you live. And so it's a treat to be here with you and to be with Mark and Ben as we come not just to worship, but to have a particular focus to our worship in this different service, very unique, but as Mark said at the beginning of our worship, an ancient service as we set apart people through the laying on of hands for particular ministry. Just a few moments ago, Ben read this passage from Matthew chapter 9 as Jesus turns to his closest followers and he says to them, looking out at a sea of people, he compared them to, to wheat. He said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray the Lord of the harvest, harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Well, tonight, in a very particular way, this prayer that Jesus gave his church has yet again been answered. Another laborer is being sent out into the harvest. Now, I know, and everybody who knows Ben and Monica, for that matter, that they've been working in the Lord's harvest for a long time now. This is not new material for them. But tonight, Ben responds to a call, to a particular call to lead God's people in mission as a presbyter. And then he will make some solemn promises in just a few moments, and we will continue to pray. And we'll make the focus of our prayers that Ben will be able to keep the promises that he makes, that the Lord will empower him with his spirit. And as we lay hands upon him with this ancient biblical tradition, asking God to anoint him for this particular gift that will require the gift of leadership. It's all exciting. It's a great moment for Ben and Monica. It's a great moment for Church of the Cross, and it's a a great moment for the family of the Anglican Mission. But it actually goes beyond that, because the Anglican family is a very large family. It covers the globe. It's not just something focused here in Boston, not just something in the States. It actually is across 37 provinces all over the world. And as a presbyter in the church, Ben will be afforded the opportunity to minister at the Lord's table at all of those churches were he to be invited to come up and lead that part of worship. And so what we do today, we don't just do for ourselves, but we actually do it joining in with people all over the globe who are part of the Anglican tradition. And so what I'd like to do just for the remaining time I have is to go back and focus on a theme that if you listen closely to the readings, it came up again and again, and it was the theme of call. As we go back to that passage from Isaiah, that peculiar vision that the prophet Isaiah had of the very throne room of God, as he was overwhelmed by a sense of the majesty, but he said it, holiness of God, this separateness, this holy otherness of God. We don't know exactly what his experience was, but what we do know is that as he experienced this sense of the presence of God, it gave him a very clear sense of who he was. Or maybe also who he wasn't. He knew that he was not worthy to stand. 
I guess in one sense, what he was saying is he had this vision of God was, I am a dead man because I've come into the presence of the living God. But it was then that he received God's call to be the prophet and he obeyed. He was anointed and he went. And then as we listen to the reading from Acts, we again hear of the call on the Apostle Paul's life as he hears the Spirit tell him to go to Jerusalem, to leave this community in Ephesus that he loved so dearly that he labored among these people for three years that was such a strong affection that as they took him to the shore, all of them wept as he shoved off. But the call of God was strong, and so he obeyed. And then again, we see Jesus with his disciples, and he tells them, look out at the people. Look at all these people in this community. The harvest is white, but the laborers are few. Pray for more to be called and to respond to the call. You see, Ben, that's why we're here for this particular moment. You too have been called, and you've responded obediently to the call. You've first been called to be a disciple. Anyone who, call, who responds to the call of Christ is called to be a, a disciple, a lifelong learner of what it means to follow Jesus Christ, what it means to, to mold our lives and shape our lives in such a way that we walk as he walked, not doing it on our own, but asking him to fill us with his spirit that he would transform us from the inside out that we actually could follow him, be imitators of Christ. We know that that call on the disciples, those disciples to whom Jesus spoke that day when he said the the harvest is plentiful, they were people who responded to Jesus' call. With Peter and Andrew, it started as simply as, come, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. It's interesting in that call, we we hear one of the most important parts of ever being called by God to do anything when Jesus says, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Because inherent in that call is this subtle reminder, and I guess I'll focus it for a moment on you, Ben. Before he ever calls you to a task, he calls you to himself. Come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And it's true for all of us. There may be tasks that we take on in the name of God, but before he ever called you to the task, he always calls you to himself first. Don't ever forget that first call. There will be many things to do as a, as a presbyter in the church. There will be additional duties, additional responsibilities. We probably didn't tell you this, Monica, but there's even more that you're going to be entrusted with. But before he called you to any of that, before he called us to anything that we would go out and do, any task, he calls you to himself. Do not neglect those times of intimate fellowship with Christ where you would pull aside with him to seek his face, to be nourished by his word and by his very presence. But the same is true with all of us, that we would always make time to draw near to God. But there are a few other calls that I want to hold up for Ben in particular, but for all of us to consider this evening. That as those who are called by God, we are called to a life of steadfast study. That we would look at Jesus, that we would make his life the wellspring of our desire to study most anything else we would ever study. Ben, You want to make your study of Christ the wellspring of your desire to read most every other book you ever read, and you've read plenty. 
The disciples followed Jesus. He taught them. They walked with Jesus. He influenced them. But more than that, Jesus formed them. He formed and shaped their character. He laid down his life for them, and they learned what he taught. But more importantly, they imitated his example. Do you realize this about any follower of Christ? You could put it this way, that every follower of Christ is a sheep from the front, but a shepherd from the back. And so it is with you, Ben. You're a sheep from the front, but you're a shepherd from the back. And the point is, just as Jesus' own disciples followed him and imitated him, there will be people who will follow you as you imitate Christ, and they will imitate you. So be careful, because you're called to a life of steadfast study, studying Christ himself. It's interesting, as disciples, we go through a process of learning of starting in one phase, but growing and growing and growing. You could think of it this way, of of four separate cycles, four separate stages of of learning what it means to be a follower of Christ. We all begin at the same place, at at what you could call a level of unconscious incompetence. In other words, we don't know what we're doing, and we don't even know that we don't know what we're doing. When Jesus said to the disciples, come, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. You remember what they did? They left their nets and followed him. They had no idea what he was going to get them to do. They had unconscious incompetence at being fishers of men. That's where we all begin. But then as we grow, as we, as we watch Jesus minister, then we go to the next stage of a conscious incompetence. As we follow Christ, as we try to live for Christ, we realize I can't do what it is you're calling me to do. I read the scriptures and it tells me the the kind of moral life I'm to live. I can't do it. And so we find ourselves going from an unconscious incompetence as followers of Christ to a level of conscious incompetence. Now, I don't know what I'm doing and I know I don't know what I'm doing. Sometimes you'll feel like that in ministry, Ben. That as you start out to take on tasks as a presbyter, you'll take it on boldly only to realize, I don't think I know what I'm doing. And then you'll realize, no, I know. I don't know what I'm doing. But you don't have to give up there. Just like none of us, as we walk with Christ, don't have to give up there. Yet I will say that it's at that point in many people's journey with Christ where we give up most often. But there's another place Christ will take us. He'll move us then to that place of conscious competence. That place of of an awkward competence where we Now we know what it is we're supposed to do. And now we can do it. But we have to think about it so hard. Let me give an example, not from ministry or for our life as followers of Jesus, just to see if this idea of unconscious competence and uh, unconscious incompetence and conscious incompetence and now unconscious competence makes sense. For me, it all makes sense when you think of dancing, especially the way I dance. You see... I can dance with an unconscious incompetence. Just ask my children. Because what they usually do is they say, Dad, stop. Just stop. And then it takes me to the level of conscious incompetence. Although Teresa puts up with me and she says, Oh, I love to dance with you. And and so that really takes me to the place where I tend to stay the most, and that's conscious competence. And in dancing, what that means is it's 
One, two, three, one, two, three. Because left to my own devices, well, Elaine on Seinfeld comes to mind. But you see, in Christ, as we follow Christ, he takes us to the last level. And that's an unconscious competence. It's where the things of God are put in us. That's what he meant as he spoke through the Old Testament prophets, that there will be a day, he said, when I will come and I will take my law and I'll write it on your hearts. That which you can look at on the outside and say, well, that's a good idea, don't kill people. That's a good idea, don't, have, don't commit adultery. That's a good idea, don't steal. The problem is it's not an intellectual problem. We can look at all of the laws of God and agree that they're good. It's that we can't do them. We have busted wannas. I just don't want to do it. My mind agrees, but my capacity sinks. And so God promised that he would do a new work and he would write his law not on tablets of stone outside of us, but he'd write it on our hearts. And he'd take his spirit and put him within us so that we would now have the capacity to do and be what it is that we might see and agree with, but not be able to do. You see, maybe you remember your teenage years. I've talked to so many parents of teenagers in congregations where I've served, and they say, I don't understand. I don't know what we're going to do. We need to ship them off to boarding school. We need to send them some program. They're driving me crazy. And I love looking at them and say, you know, most teenagers aren't rebels out of design. They're rebels by frustration. You see, I promise you, your teenager doesn't grow, wake up in the morning and say, how can I make my parents' life miserable today? It's just that as they go through the day and they see what it is that they're supposed to do, they see what it is they're supposed to be, and they realize, I can't do it. But now I'm not just talking about teenagers, am I? I'm talking about the likes of us. And that's why God said he would put his law in our hearts. He would put his spirit within us and create the capacity because of what Christ did on the cross for us. He gave us the capacity to have this new life. You're called into this life of a steadfast study of Christ so that you can lead others into a deeper devotion to Christ, to come to that place of an unconscious competence in following him. You're also called to a life of an abiding trust. All of us are. Not just to say, oh yes, I believe. Oh, I believe everything in the creed. I believe everything Mark and Ben say. Intellectual checking off every tenet of the faith. No, what we're called to is trust to be willing to risk, to be willing to take our lives and put them at the risk. Trust means that I would be willing to make myself vulnerable to all the possibilities of what the object of my trust could be or do to me. An abiding trust in God. But you're called not just to a life of abiding trust, Ben, as all of us are, but you're called to demonstrate it, to show us what that looks like to preach on the necessity of faith, but then to demonstrate what it means to be a person of faith. We so often trivialize the church to be little more than a club. No wonder the world isn't banging on the door to get in. We turn to friends and say, why don't you come to church? I I found a place where, where, well, everybody everybody knows who you are, and, and it's a place where you can have lots of friendships. And the world hears that and says, been there, done that, especially in this town. I've got a place I go where everybody knows my name. 
Or we say, no, no, come to this place because it's a place where you can come and you can be understood. And again, people in our culture say, been there, done that. I've got a therapist. But when you say, come to a place where I know a people who will attempt something so outrageous that if the God of heaven and earth doesn't show up, we're sunk. They can't say, been there, done that. And they want to see it. And they want to see it in our lives. But in order for that to happen, we have to be willing to take the risk. To step out in faith. To trust that God will actually show up. Well, what does this look like? Well, as we pass someone on the street and we see them struggling, rather than simply making a mental note, I need to add that person to my prayer list, that instead we might actually take a step further and step over to that person and say, may I pray for you? Why would you do that? Well, because we're people of prayer. And we do that kind of thing. We represent Christ, and we're actually taking this tremendous step of faith, this abiding trust that the same God who meets us here when we say all of our prayers and engage with Him here actually shows up outside of these walls as well, actually shows up at the grocery store, actually shows up in the library, or as we walk down the street. And so you're called to a life of such abiding trust. You're also called to a life of generous compassion. And it's as I'm mentioning with actually reaching out and and praying. You see, we live in a world that's so addicted to need, particularly our own, because we want our needs met. We put a premium on making sure they're met and they're met quickly. And if you don't know what I mean, if you've ever driven through a drive-thru at McDonald's where we speak to a box and then we drive up about 15 feet And within 30 seconds, we're upset if we don't have a hot hamburger, warm fries, and a cold drink. We want our needs met quickly. No, you're called to a life of generous compassion. Any follower of Christ is. The fact is, we take that great old rock song and we turn it inside out. And instead of it being all we need is love... We live all we love is need. (laughs) The fact has been, to be a faithful presbyter, as a follower of Christ, we have to be willing to live in such a way that we allow the needs of other people to make a claim on us. I know it's your heart. I know it's your passion, both you and Monica, to see a people more and more willing to let the needs of others make a claim on them. Our time, our energy, our resources. Show us how. Live it among us. Spur us on. And lastly, you're called to a life of holy boldness. To be taking those outrageous steps. How will the world know? How is it that we know that we're responding to this call of Christ? Well, it is true that we would remember that before he calls us to a task, he calls us to himself. But we also remember that We're called to step out and act boldly. You see, church isn't merely somewhere you go. Church is what you are as a follower of Christ. And again, whether you're in the library or whether you're walking down the street, if you're a follower of Christ, there walks the church. And so will Christ manifest himself in our lives in our moments of our days, 
Are we willing to be bold, to live a life of holy boldness, where we actually would know that we're blessed to be a blessing? It's interesting. The churches that I go around to visiting, I see people who know they're so blessed. Surely you know you're blessed with so many things. But I think particularly as Americans, we enjoy being blessed. And in fact, we're blessed to be blessed. It's as if we receive the blessings of God and we just want to stay right there. I am blessed and I am so blessed to be blessed. No, God didn't bless us so that we merely could be blessed to be blessed. He blessed us to be a blessing to others. That was part of Abraham's call. And it's the heritage of faith in the church even today that we who would know as the community, not of the perfect, but of the redeemed, as those who know what it means to be broken and forgiven, know what it means to be discarded and brought back in, know what it means to be those who feel worthless, but now have been given the grace to stand worthy before God. We would want to boldly live that for everyone else to know and to experience. We are truly blessed to be that blessing. And so you're called to a life of holy boldness to represent that. In just a few moments, you're going to stand in the presence of God with all of this congregation witnessing then. In some ways, to make promises that every one of us also ought to resonate with, thinking wait a minute, what's so unique about that? I think I'm called to do that, and it's true. So as you listen, listen well. But then what we are doing is you are responding to this call is that we are setting you apart to lead, to lead us, to show us that we might have another example to imitate. It's daunting to think, imitate me? (laughs) but it's part of the call on every one of us to be imitators of God and to walk in love as beloved children as he loves us and gave himself up as a sacrifice for us. So now in response to this word, I invite us to a time of prayer as we intercede for the world, the church, and those around us. Amen.